Ka-pow! Coming at you like plow! Cages and fists, chokes and kicks, am, am, a. Welcome to Kapow MMA on this November 2nd. My name is Evan Kimball. The man across from me is Luke Lester. We will talk about contentious matters, but we won't talk about politics today, even though it's the election. Um, we're going we to might discuss mention COVID. We probably will. It's inevitable. Um, we'll discuss UFC 254, uh, the main event, what stems off of that, some of the main fights on the card. Uh, discuss a little bit about the upcoming uh, fight night cards, uh, the Korean Zombie versus uh, what's his face? Brian Ortega. Brian Ortega. Um, discuss baby. that, and then some of the stuff that's going on with mixed martial arts right now. Maybe some gossip. See what we get to. Uh, so first off, let me kick it off to you. Is Habib Nurmagomedov retired? Um, I mean, most of the time, MMA retirements seem pretty suspect. I feel like you've got to give guys like a couple of years before it becomes legit after they announce the retirement. The thing is with Habib, I think he's a very principled uh, guy. Mm. And when he commits to saying something, that means a lot to him. So if he said it and it was based on his relationship with his mother, his mother didn't want him to continue to fight without the support of his father who passed away earlier this year. Yeah. Um, I believe in that a lot. Now, that being said, I'm kind of coming around to the idea he might come out of retirement if somehow his mother is convinced that it would be a good idea. Like perhaps Dana White tries to romance his mother and becomes Khabib's new father and then says, let's get back to uh, fighting. Right, look, to stoke the fire, the Habib returns stuff, you know, his dad, his father apparently said that he wanted Habib to get to 30 and 0. So that kind of provides some, some, you know, ammunition, if you will, for him to come to his mother or discuss with his mother and say, look, one more fight, um, you know, and then I fulfill what my dad thought I should do is get to 30 and 0 and then retire. So there's that, and then there's obviously the Dana White and his discussion, and, and apparently Dana thinking he's not done. You know, obviously Dana says a lot right. of stuff, but um, he says Habib Nurmagomedov is still the lightweight champion. They haven't, he hasn't vacated that belt yet. So if you had to bet your life savings, does Habib Nurmagomedov fight in mixed martial arts again? <laughs> My life savings? I would say no. Okay, he doesn't. <laughs> um. And I think that means that George St. Pierre is retired, retired. He said he's <laughs> retired, yeah. but he's also talked a lot about wanting to fight Habib, how Habib, he's this puzzle that nobody knows the answer to, and mm. I want to solve him. Now to get into the details, what did you make of the fight between Habib Nurmagomedov and Justin Gaethje? Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff we talked, up in the, talked about in the lead up where, you know, things that Justin may be able to do to cause Habib problems and, and you know, where Habib's going to be strong in this fight. Was there anything that surprised you about the fight? Um, one thing that did surprise me was how Habib was able to go from a fully upright stance yeah. to like a low single or double so quickly. Mm -hmm. Like that was pretty amazing. Just the speed of that transition. Yeah. Normally when you have people who are wanting to go for a takedown or something like that, mm -hmm. they usually start by initially lowering their posture. Right. But Habib was able to do it from like a full like striking posture where he was like right upright. And I noticed you mentioned that the upright part is that Habib's posture was very upright, surprisingly upright, and it didn't telegraph that he was planning yeah. on shooting at all. You know, it was very straight back and um, yeah, he bends at the legs, not usually at the back when he shoots a lot of times. He's uh, very quick at it. Uh, you know, I was also surprised by his forward pressure and striking. 
Mm. You know, I really didn't think he would be able to do that to Gaethje uh, right. early on, especially. You know, um, you know, obviously it was commented on that I think part of the his availability to do that was that Justin was worried about the shot, right? Worried about right. the takedown. But um, I was surprised that Habib was landing regularly from the onset of the first round into the second round with just striking and no takedowns. And obviously he, he you know, he put them in there and got his takedowns. And when he got those takedowns, he advanced rapidly. Right. Like his jiu-jitsu game just, just overwhelmed Gaethje. But uh, I was surprised with the forward pressure and striking. So good. It is interesting, though, um, in the final sequence, um, one of the narratives going into this was if Habib is going to get Justin Gaethje on the ground, he probably wants to be on top. But Justin Gaethje was able to reverse Habib and then Habib actually caught Gaethje in a triangle from the bottom. He kind of so so how it works with a lot of guys is that they'll put one leg over the shoulder, so it's a baiting move. So okay. it's a mount, it's basically okay. turns into a mounted triangle, ah. and then they roll into a triangle. Okay. So he had the triangle position in mount, and then rolled to his back from there. Okay. But okay. Justin did get on top, right? But also I think strategically for Habib, it was like late in the round, you know. So the worst case scenario is if he doesn't tap Justin. If Justin's with his pressure and, and good grappling of his own could hold Habib down, it's not going to be a long time that he's on the bottom, right? The round's going to end quickly. So um, I think that was a calculated decision for him from him too. But um, well, yeah. what's Very interesting nice. when Habib talked about the finish afterwards was he said he chose to go for yeah. a choke because yeah. he felt like Gaethje was a guy who just wouldn't tap. Yeah. And Gaethje's parents were actually in the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Habib didn't want to damage um, Gaethje's arm yeah. in front of his parents. So he went for the choke. <laughs> now, ultimately, um, I think there was a tap that the referee missed. That's what I saw. Yeah. But did you see it as a tap? Or I did. did you? I okay. Did. Yeah. I thought they missed it. I thought the ref missed it, but I thought the fight was going to go on. And I was like, this is so crazy. There was a moment there where I saw him kind of hit the side of his right. leg. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Very different from the Conor McGregor fight with Habib, right? Where when Habib got him down, it was about punching him, right? Right. So same thing with the Gaethje fight. It was like there was very little striking on the ground, which is similar to the not wanting to do damage idea, right? It right. was more about getting to the ground and advancing rapidly from a jiu-jitsu standpoint and getting the submission. Um, he and, had a close submission in the first yeah. round. And also with Connor, um, Habib was like right on the jaw too. Yeah, <laughs> neck crank, yeah. Yeah, brutal. Obviously he did get a submission that, that you know, you, you usually would pass out before something breaks, but um, neck crank's a little different, a little bit, but, but even so, similar. But yeah, the striking was interesting, right? Right. He didn't really put a beating on Gaethje mm. like he could have once he got him down and controlled him. Right. Yeah. yeah, it was a it was an interesting fight. What a way to send off a career, right? I mean, that was, in my opinion, probably his most dominant performance. Um, you know, he, he I think controlled the striking. Definitely got hit more than usual. Mm. Um, you know, but controlled the striking, controlled the octagon. Takedowns were his, the, the ground control was clearly his, and, and in that area, he had a stark advantage, right? Um, and implemented that really effectively. So, um, what a, what an impressive performance. Outside of a couple strikes that Gaethje landed in the first and second round, and a couple clean, you know, relatively good punches, it was all Habib. Well, speaking of Gaethje, do you think that was the best version, the best strategy from Gaethje, or do you think that was a bit diminished from his full capacity? Like, how much do you think Habib contributed to the victory, and how much do you think Justin did? I don't know. I think that I think that in large, whether people like to admit it or not, they spend their wrestling camp training for Habib, but I think that he was incredibly, Justin, that is, was incredibly tentative of the shot, and that opened up a lot of strikes from Habib on right. the feet. So I think that was probably not the best he could do, 
because of that psychological factor. Like if he let go of the fact that Habib, which he can't obviously, but has this huge edge on pretty much everybody he fights in the grappling in the wrestling department, um, and be less tentative with the strikes, he may do better. But right. there is always that fear that if you forget about it, it's you right. know, right. it's uh, gonna sneak up on you and bite you in the ass later, right? Well, one of the interesting insights about Habib um, was by John Kavanaugh um, in talking about when his student Conor McGregor fought Habib, how in the camp leading up, they focused primarily on defending the takedown, defending the takedown. And John Kavanaugh says he feels like that's actually a mistake. We should have focused a bit more on what Conor McGregor does well. Right. And his offense, his attack rather than the defense. Mm -hmm. So perhaps if Habib continues to, um, to compete, another coach will implement a strategy that is based more on their own offense yeah. than the defense. Yeah. It might be, maybe it's a bit of a matter of when Anderson Silva was in his heyday, people were so concerned about leaving something open to get knocked out that essentially that's the way it played out anyways, because they weren't able to offer offense right and then chris weidman comes around with some major offense and I, I kind of like you know obviously i don't know shit about this but i agree with the john kavanaugh philosophy where hmm. you know if you think about it if you compare it and use an analogy of chess right because i think mma has related parts to chess right where there's a lot of strategic components and the efforts that you make at the beginning of the game compound and pay off later so right. if you set up certain things in a certain way early on, uh -huh. that's going to have compounding effects later. Oh, I put my rook here. I put my queen here. I put my pawn here. Yeah. And they're all for a purpose. And later on, they're going to pay off much as, um, you know, somebody hits somebody with a good leg kick and continues to chip away at that leg by round four or five. That could have substantive differences in the fight, right? It matter. And I think in large, that's kind of a similar situation in, in mixed martial arts. But even worse for Connor because every effort he makes causes him to become more tired because he's not really that type of guy who's got that gas tank to go long. Right. So he can't really play the defensive long game. Right. You know what I mean? If you play like okay, if you play chess defensively, it's going to take a lot longer to win. Right. Because you're not on the attack. You're yeah. you're going to have to defend, 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 and then when opportunities arise, you can you can start mounting an offense. Right. But I don't think Connor has that luxury to defend into rounds two, three, four, not really producing an offense, but just defending. He's not going to win that game where it's like energy versus energy system. You know, he's got to right. be hurting the guy, you know, right. I think. So it, to me, it does like make sense, obviously, from a layman's standpoint. But um, yeah. Well, with Habib, he's such a good grappler. People fear it so much. It makes him a pretty good striker too. It does. Because it allows him to connect with a lot of strikes that otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. The one if that triangle wasn't there. Right. Absolutely. You know, if that was a boxing match, that wouldn't have happened. I don't think anyway. But, but going back to what you said about this being, what did you say? A perfect retirement or an excellent retirement? Perfect fight. As okay. close to perfect as you could get. I mean, it's okay. not perfect, but I think it's the best fight that he had in his career. That I saw, okay. that I was witness to. Um, setting this fight aside, as far as Habib's legacy goes, um, for his own life, this might be the best thing. For the MMA fan in myself, I feel Habib's career... Um, it's very, very, very good at this point, but if he wants to be absolutely great, I feel he needs Tony Ferguson and George St. Pierre on his record. Right. That's my opinion. Yeah. I mean, did you see any of the Twitter back and forth with fans and John Jones and just talking about, you know, how Habib's only defended his title four right. times. And, you know, John, uh, John Jones sounds a little, little bit like, you know, just 
like he's whining or complaining about it. Like the best thing to do, in my opinion, in the position John is, is let the fans speak for you. You know, you don't have to create an argument. It sounds weak if you have to like disparage someone else to bring your name up. But it's, he, it's he a decent points. argument. He it's made, a decent argument. Yeah, I mean, he's defended he defended the title like what, like twelve times or something like that. Yeah, but also we need to consider that he was able to get a title shot much earlier in his yeah. UFC career. At lightweight, it's a much longer line. Yeah, and, and that lends itself to the idea that, like, look, it's just a deeper division. It's just way deeper. And also, I think the problem with Jones is that we often correlate star power with skill. Hmm. So Jones' argument is like, look at the first four guys I beat up, like Rashad Evans. I mean, and it's like, yeah, because the light heavyweight division was popular, but is Rashad Evans as good as, you know, a Conor McGregor or somebody else like that that Habib had to fight. I don't, right. don't know. You know, relative pound-for-pound pound skill and, and ratioing out the eras because they're different. But even so, it's like, you know, I just think the strength, strength of the schedule is, is something to be talked about too. And so there's a lot of variables, but, you know, John brings up some good points uh, as far as Habib being the, the, you know, greatest of all time or pound-for-pound pound great, which are two different arguments and, and he kind of conflated the two in his talks, mm -hmm. but um, it is interesting. I mean, what do you think? What's your, what's your argument? You know, what is the argument for Habib being the pound for pound number one fighter right now? And what's the argument against it? Okay. Well, first of all, John Jones has had um, drug test failures for performance enhanced drugs. You're comparing it with two at the top. Like those are the only two, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Habib has not had that issue. Yeah. So this is um, goes back a bit to the George St. Pierre versus Anderson Silva type of argument. Um, and it's, it's further related to that in that Jones had a lot of impressive finishes. Habib, maybe a bit less so, but still, I don't know, a good amount of finishes. Mm -hmm. So maybe that isn't the best way to measure the two. Um, there's the matter of John Jones on several scorecards has been thought to have lost several rounds in his career, yep. whereas Habib sure. has thought to have lost maybe like a couple rounds. Yep. And there's a couple of the last fights John Jones had um, many people scored for the opponent. So, and there's no fight Habib won that people thought, well, it should have gone the other way reasonably. Yeah, was there uh and Tebow was the only one, right? Okay, okay. But, I don't know. I mean, some people thought that, but. Okay. Okay. It's a stretch. All right. It's the closest okay. fight okay. I think he's ever had. Okay. So, so there was a reasonable argument there? I don't think so. But okay. People say that. So. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. And there was, you know, there was Reyes and there was Thiago Santos. Right. Being the two fights that Jones had. So, fair points. Yeah. Um, also, to me... Uh... I don't know. What do you think of the argument of, well, I'm just kind of parsing this out in my head. Yeah. Um, what we do on the A really dominant grappler yeah. beating opponents versus somebody who is a very pretty dominant grappler in his own right, but yeah. also beats fighters... Um, on the scorecards when it comes to striking two. Yeah. It's not totally the GSP Anderson Silva comparison, but it's not totally removed from that either, where okay. Habib is obviously GSP in this scenario and Anderson Silva is John Jones. John has a lot of wrestling and and, and has definitely had some long-winded and, and some would argue boring fights over the years. A few of them, not many, but um, I can see the parallels. But yeah, it's an interesting question. Like, do we, do we give Habib more credit for his dominance uh, because he hasn't lost much space at all in a fight 
but that also lends itself to the style that he has. Grappling right. heavy styles typically have those results in fights. Like George St. Pierre has lost very few rounds. Right. You know, you get a guy down and, and the judges give you a lot of, of uh, credit for controlling another guy as long as you're landing limited strikes. Right. So. And then there's the matter of light heavyweight. There was a time when everybody was the champion. Yeah. So John Jones beat a bunch of former champions, yeah. but that's because these guys had the championship and they never defended the title, had the championship, never defended it, and the title was changing hands so frequently, yeah. there were a lot of former champions to beat. Absolutely. It's true. It's, you know... There's only a few guys that John Jones fought, and part of it is due to the era changes, but that are still in the UFC. Obviously, Glover Teixeira coming up, he's fighting Tiago Santos. He's maintained relevancy over a long period of time since his fight with John Jones, and still kind of climbing his way back to that title shot. Obviously, Jones, Jones vacating, so it's, it's a different scenario here, but um, how many guys in light heavyweight has John Jones fought for the title and won that are still really, really relevant? A lot right. of those, what I'm, I'm not saying more of the guys now that he was close in fighting to and yeah. edged out. I'm talking about more that era that, you know, the Quentin Jacksons and the Rashad Evans is and all these different guys that he fought. Mauricio Shogun Hua, all these guys he fought, you know, Ludo Machida and, and the list goes on and on that had a big name, but they're not really here anymore, you know? Um, I say Habib is the number one pound for pound and the greatest of all time, just to troll John <laughs> Jones. <laughs> and also for time's sake, because we've been focusing on this, uh, this main event. Yeah, and, uh, that too. The surrounding Habib Nurmagomedov legacy for, uh, for a while. Um, yes. Down to middleweight, Robert Whitaker beats Jared Cannonier and, you know, a somewhat lopsided decision. A lot of people, I think, were surprised by this, especially given the odds. It was kind of a pick em fight. Um, you know, Dana White went on the record saying Robert Whitaker did not want to fight Israel Adesanya. And as a result, Israel Adesanya is now going to be fighting for the light heavyweight title against Jan Blackwoods. Right. Now, Robert went on Twitter and, and disputed that fact and said, look, he just wanted a different timeline and this and that. What's going to happen with Robert Whitaker at this point? Is he going to fight for an interim title then? Or what do you make of the situation? I mean, it was a very good win. Yeah. Um, I would suppose he fights the winner of uh, Jack Hermanson versus who's he fighting? Jack Hermanson versus whoever he's fighting. Okay. I don't know. I don't um, the winner of that fight. Um, yeah, it seems kind of strange too because Dana White was saying publicly Robert Whitaker didn't want the fight, yeah. so we made this fight. But I don't think that's what Robert Whitaker's really been saying. He said that would make sense, but he's not in a particular rush. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Perhaps it's um, some kind of contract dispute type of issue. Yeah. Um, going back to the actual fight though, um, even though the odds put them pretty close, I'm not really that surprised. I kind of thought that Whitaker was the much more skilled and technical fighter. Right. And I really see Jared Cannonier as more of a dangerous powerhouse, yeah. but not being at the very top level of the division as far as the, the complete skill set. I think it's a fair argument. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has some heavy hands. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, outside of that, you know, how good is his grappling? How good is his wrestling? Right. Um, you know, how good is his game plan and strategy? Because some of that stuff, I, I felt like, you know, there's some questions unanswered and maybe some weaknesses that we saw in this fight as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of exposed a little bit of Jared Cannonier and kind of, you know, where he's at right now. And, you know, definitely, you know, back to the drawing board, so to speak. Right. Um, so, my girl Jessica Andrade picked up a good win against uh, Caitlin Chikagian, um, moving up a division to women's flyweight. Mm. What card was this on? 
Is this on the same card? I believe it was. Okay. Oh, this was the free lending, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I didn't watch that. Um, yeah, she is an interesting character. Um, what made her so good down a division? Um, essentially, to me, being like the Matt Hughes of that division, just a powerhouse slamming women. Hmm. I'm not sure how that will translate up a division, but against a top contender in Caitlin Shikagin, she looked uh, very, very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, I kind of think the jump between the contenders and Valentina Shevchenko at the top is still a pretty wide one. Totally, totally. So I am a bit concerned about her chances, but I'll tell you this, um, I would be more interested in seeing her fight for the title than the current woman who's fighting for Valentina Shevchenko next, Jennifer Maya. I completely agree. I mean, you know, Without sounding, you know, I don't know how to say it, but Jessica Andrade has a certain level of physicality that mm -hmm. you don't always see in certain divisions and in certain, you know, you know, some of the women's fights, you know, she just has a level of intensity that I think is, is somewhat rare, you know, a level of physicality that's somewhat rare. And um, I think that in some ways that pairs really well with Ioana, oh, Ioana and JJ, Valentina Shevchenko, I should say. Um, I think that both of them obviously have that physical physicality, mm -hmm. you know, Shevchenko obviously being, I would argue, obviously the more talented fighter. Uh, and I think most of us would agree based on, you know, results and, and uh, her skill set and stuff like that. But I think you're right. I think I'd probably really like to see Jessica Andrade fight for a title uh, pretty soon here. It would be interesting. Yeah. There's not a lot of other options, so it may seem rushed, but um, who else do we want to see Shevchenko fight? Right. Point, you know? Um, this was the fight night card preceding the uh, UFC 254. So Brian Ortega fought Chance on Jung, Korean Zombie in the main event. Um, I didn't actually watch the fight, but what did you make of the fight? Um, I thought it was a very impressive showing for Brian Ortega. He's been out for uh, over a year now, and it seems pretty clear he's been working hard on his skills in the interim. Yeah. Getting yeah. much better um, on the feet. I was actually uh, like the grappling nerd in me was hoping to see what would happen when things go to the ground. Yeah. Because I know you were thinking like, oh, Ortega like pretty much smokes him on the ground. But I don't know. Oh, I, think, I think Zombies, he's got some tricks on the ground too. Oh, he definitely has tricks. He definitely has tricks. Yeah, that would be interesting. I actually want to watch that fight. So um, I might have to go check it out. Actually, check it out because I, I didn't see anything on that fight night card, but I like both fighters, uh, so it'll be interesting. Um, so you know, we talked about Habib Nurmagomedov, and that could be the top contender for uh, Alexander Volkanovsky. Certainly, during yeah. the fight, um, that's what Volkanovsky uh, seemed to be implying. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Habib Nurmagomedov, potentially a fighter that. You know, maybe he's got, he's definitely got more left, more left in the tank and, and maybe a fighter who's retiring a little too early. Now, on the other end of that scale, we had Anderson Silva fight Uriah Hall. And this is a fighter who's obviously, um, in many people's eyes, you know, a few too late, you know, three or four or five maybe or more too late. Um, you know, he's 45, turning 46 soon. Uh, what can we say after this KO loss to Uriah Hall? What can we say about Anderson Silva's career, uh, his accomplishments? and the latter stage of his career and, and the choices he made. Right. Okay. Um, well, first of all, is this getting to um, BJ Penn territory or <laughs> is it that bad at this point? I mean, I don't With think Anderson so. Silva. I, I feel like Anderson Silva has been fighting top tier talent, mm. you know, at least okay. you know, top, close to top 10, if not top 10. Every single fight, I think Uriah Hall is kind of up there in that in that realm, and, and then obviously, you know, he fought Israel Adesanya just a few fights ago, right? So and went to decision, you know. So okay. I mean, I don't think he's irrelevant anymore, and, and you know, BJ Penn's just—it's a totally different situation with him. You know, he's fighting guys that are you know way down on the list and, and getting smashed by them a lot of times. And I love BJ Penn, no disrespect. Right. But so it might be different if he was losing to Charlie Ontiveros. Uh, you know, I kind of would have liked them to. 
have dropped Anderson Silva down like a few pegs in mm -hmm. his career. And, you know, if they could have found the problem is the up, these up and comers want to prove themselves so much. So a guy ranked number 20 might be just as dangerous as a guy ranked right. top five. Right. So it's more like yeah. you kind of want to see him fight guys that are like on the low end of things, but have a name, yeah. you know, like a guy who's yeah, like yeah, top yeah. 15, top 20, but still kind of has a name. Um, <laughs> Like, Scott Coker in Bellator has talked about how they have legends fights in this Bellator. Is what, he what, what do you think of that idea? Yeah. Like he should have fought like Vanderlei Silva or okay. like you know Vitor Belfort, something, or, even Chris Weidman. Yeah, guys, guys that have a name, <laughs> but like you know Uriah Hall for a send off fight to me is not. You know, I, I get it because Uriah's been around for a long time. He's had a lot of wins and losses and kind of in the top 10, but certainly not, you know, at a title picture kind of level. But it's like, this is also a guy who's like, what, 20 years his junior or something right. like that, Fif you know, 15 years. It's like, you know, he should have gotten like Vanderlei Silva or something like that. Obviously, he's not in UFC, but you get my point, right? It's like, right, you know. I would have liked to have seen, if he wanted to continue fighting, UFC creating kind of like a special uh, itinerary for him. You know, where it's like he fights yeah. guys that are well known, but like way below the title picture. I like just, Chris Lieben wants yeah. to come back for a fight. Perfect, Anderson Silva. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> They'll fight in bare, at the bare knuckle fighting championship. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Personally, I think it's just kind of sad. Like I, I hate to see it. I, I'd like these guys to do something else. Mm. I mean, I guess um, fighting is always dangerous. So what is the point beyond which when it becomes too dangerous? Yeah. But maybe there still is a point. Maybe there still is like an arbitrary line that should be drawn. I think it's kind of sad to see these legends just like continue to, to fight. Like yes. the whole um, Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones thing, <laughs> like yeah. that's just, what the hell is that? Yeah, the overarching. I'd just rather watch their fights when they're in their prime, you know what I mean? Yeah, the, the overarching you know term and, and uh, issue that we discuss is like structure versus agency, right? Because um, how much do you want institutional structure to affect a fighter's choice? How much agency should a fighter have over their career? You know, if they're in an Anderson yeah. Silva stage and look, Anderson might want to fight for another five years. Who knows? You know, I know he said publicly that maybe he's done, but you know, if Anderson Silva wants to take 10 more fights and get knocked out eight more times, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but should he be allowed to, should he have his own agency for that? Or should structure come in, should institutions come yeah. in and say, look, like you shouldn't be fighting, man. You're not allowed to get a license. We're not going to sanction it. It's not happening. You know. Maybe the answer is allow it, but also have the fans decide with their attention. Right. Like I have no interest in watching Mike Tyson, Roy Jones. No interest. I mean, the fans will always decide with their attention. That's that's going to happen no matter what. Right? Okay. You can't control that. I mean, it's just, you know, you can try to sell it. Is there a part where you're kind of supporting this weird freak show? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the Tito-Chuck fight, you know, uh, the Tito-Ortiz-Chuck trilogy. God. It's like, that one was like, I don't know what, man. That was weird. I feel dirty for having watched that. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. Um, at least you didn't purchase it. That's true. Because you watched it way later for free when it was allowed to be watched for free. Exactly. Anyway, way. moving on. Um, yeah, it's just weird, man. It's, it's weird. It's sad in some ways with Anderson Silva, but um, this is generally what happens, right? You know, people fade into oblivion and, and you just can't, can't cut it anymore in, right. in the UFC, really. I don't think he should be fighting anyone in the UFC pretty much. You know... You know, there's a good argument to say that Bellator and their Legends League is really the right place for fighters after they're 40. Right. If you really want to continue to compete, fight against guys with a name. Do what Chael Sonnen did. You know, fight against guys with a name that you can compete against and you're probably not, not going to get that hurt against. You know, right. Uriah Hall's a dangerous dude. I mean, remember the, uh, what's his name? Adam, whatever his last name is. Yeah. Like spinning wheel kick to oblivion. That guy can hit hard, dude. He's a dangerous guy to fight. Right. You know? He should be fighting like Chael Sonnen again. 
Hmm. Why not? You know, he should. They should have signed him to fight Jail Sonnen for the for the trilogy fight. Right. That's a perfect fight for Anderson and and Sonnen. You know. Um. This is gonna be perhaps a strange and unfair thought, but I'm just posing this as a question, maybe, about Uriah Hall. Mm. Do you think he might be too nice of a guy to be an effective fighter? Mm. Like, I wonder if something psychologically happens with him where he sees, like, the damage he can inflict, and as a caring human being, like, he Mm. doesn't necessarily want to do that yeah. like Dana White talked about him being quote unquote gun shy or something but is this recently? yeah oh. after this fight oh, really? yeah <laughs> and yeah. he talked about how few strikes that hole through and then um also after this fight Uriah Hall was like crying um partially because he beats a hero of his but yeah um I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe the mindset is not the one for fighting. Right. Maybe they're not the best analogy, but I always kind of thought of Uriah Hall as like the Robbie Lawler of the middleweight division. In that, like, he was always good, but I really thought that if the pieces came together, he could become a champion. Like I always thought of that about him, and maybe that's some of the things that Chael said on the Ultimate Fighter about him being one of the best in the division. It's probably some of that. But I always saw in him. I like, think you're listening to too much Chael. Probably, yeah, probably beyond the fight in my ear all the time. Um, Your brain's been sunnized. <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's also partially things you see, right? I mean, I think Uriah Hall is a really good fighter, and it just seems like there's some psychological stuff that could be worked yeah. on, and then if it was, it could drastically change his career. You know, it might just be putting together a narrative based on what's obvious too. You know what I mean? And the influence of Dana White. Like if you're affected by Chael Sonnen, maybe I'm affected by what sure. Dana White says yeah, too. Course. You know what I mean? Of course. Oh, we're always affected by these guys. Yeah. It's inevitable. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. I think, I think at the end of the day, it's just it's another you know, legend of the sport. Now, if we're talking about like greatest of all time status, you know, it's like, okay, so we're, I asked you initially, like, you know, in the latter stages of his career, what can we say about that, right? And it's like, how much does the last, whatever, six or seven fights that he's had, does that, how much does that diminish his, if he's on this greatest of all time list, you know, from one to 10, does that make his placement on it go down? Okay. He just snapshot, you know, we, from the time he lost the title to Weidman and say like that was, that was Anderson. We often think of this as greatest of all time and kind of make it a bit of a more general argument. Mm-hmm. Let me make it more specific. I believe Anderson Silva is the greatest finisher of all time. Finisher, okay. And there's a couple reasons why I won't say he's the greatest fighter of all time. Um, one is the strength of competition. Yeah. Another is the drug test failure. Right. Those are those are my primary issues with yeah. him being the overall goat. Yeah. But I I think he deserves the title, the greatest finisher of all time. Right. Yeah. Great, certainly most spectacular. I mean, I'm thinking of Forrest Griffin. Remember Stefan Bonner? You know, yeah. those light heavyweight move ups where he just like obliterated those dudes. Right. You know, Bonner being on steroids gets beat to Yeah, the front kick to the face. I mean, he's had a number of highlight real finishes. And he's not just KOing guys, too. He's submitting them as yep. well. Dan Henderson, very impressive. Jail Sonnen. Yeah, he's an expert finisher. You're right about that. Um, but if you had to put him on the list. The list of the greatest of all time? Okay. Uh, I'll give him, off the top of my head, I'm going to give him number four. Okay. But that's without a lot of careful consideration. So I'm thinking of the obvious, like, four. And I think you know who I mean. Yeah. But... Should Daniel Cormier be thrown in there? Yeah, probably, if I'm expanding it a bit. See, here's here's the kind of thing, you know, okay, so I was 
listening to or watching John Jones tweet about, you know, how Habib's non-deserving of this this pound for pound number one fighter thing, and then using goat stuff to to imply it. It's totally two different two different things. Obviously, the greatest of all time is saying like body of work. Who's the best ever? Mm-hmm. Who's the best to ever do it? Pound yeah. for pound is current in my head. You're the pound okay. for if you're the pound okay. for pound number one fighter, and it's changing all the time. That's who in that snapshot of time right now is the best. And I yeah. think Habib's the best. I do. I think yeah. he's better than John right now. But John's higher up in the GOAT yeah. status because of his body of work. I think, you know, Habib, you could argue the GOAT stuff because, you know, he doesn't have the legacy John does. He has a strength schedule. There's many arguments there. But as far as pound for pound goes, you know, you don't use arguments of like your career and its linear, you know, success to compare how good you are today. Like how good is John today versus how good is Habib today, pound for pound? In my mind, considering either of the terms, I often conflate the two in my mind. I mean, that's that's what I look at. Right. Greatest of all time versus pound for pound best. So, but that I think is a useful way of thinking about the argument. Yeah, I think you have to separate them because one of them is implying there's a time time horizon. There's, There's time between you know, being the greatest and there's, there's a compounding value in it versus pound for pound is a current ranking. It's there's current like ranking. a separate place for Hoist Gracie, a separate place for Fedor, maybe a couple of those guys historically, but you can't say they're the pound for pound best because that should well, you relate could, to the current. Well, here's where it gets more confusing is you could say that the, the pound, pound for pound, for pound, pound goat. No, but you could say that the pound for pound best because for example, when John Jones, you know, let's say when John Jones starched, um, if Fedor was in his prime right now, how would he do against well, John it. Jones? Like they're their pound for pound at one moment. Like is John Jones at his pound for pound moment better than Habib is now, being the pound for pound great? So you compare moments in time, but I'm more thinking of you know the way we set it up now, whereas yeah. pound for pound rankings are based on current. Ability right. pound for pound, not historical pound for pounds. Like there's a time, there's a point in time where John Jones was probably the pound for pound greatest fighter. Can you take that point in time and compare it to Habib now, pound for pound? Sure, why not? You can do anything you want, but the way I'm talking about it, and the way the UFC I, set I it up, is point. I see your point. Yeah. Um, even though John Jones hasn't fought in around a year, I think he counts as current, though. Yeah. So. But I might argue maybe George St. Pierre doesn't count as current anymore right. in shaping the argument. Right. Well, what I'm saying is like, does the John Jones who beat Alexander Gustafson the second time, you compare that John Jones, or maybe a, even an earlier version of him, the guy who smashed up the sheriff, is that version of him pound for pound better than Habib's version pound for pound today? So you could do those comparisons, right? Right. Which in which case you could argue pound for pound, but the way we use it is the UFC ranking and the way we think about it is current pound for pound is actually yeah. a ranking. So that's that's like today who's better. Pound Truth, pound. Truthfully, current pound for pound is the most, the best thing to argue. That's the most relevant to yeah. me. Um, it's basically who's the greatest fighter right now on the face of the earth. When you're comparing the GOAT argument, though, I think to a certain degree, it's it kind of gets stupid at a certain it does. point. It does. Because in different eras, different fighters had to deal with different parts of the MMA game and the evolution of the sport. 100%. So it's shallow versus when, competitive when you're like, um, well, if Fedor at the time he got to train at Jackson's or he got to train at ATT when he was in his prime and um, Pride had better testing for steroids or like, I think it's I almost know. better to use GOAT to compare GOAT of that era, right? Mm. Like John Jones. So maybe uh, if you narrow it to goat of a five-year period exactly. or something like that like john jones okay. goat from you know 2012 but, to 2017 i think that's a good point i think it's important to limit it to a certain chronological time yeah. Yeah. 
Because otherwise it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know if uh, Muhammad Ali is a better boxer than like Vladimir Klitschko. You know, it's just like, yes, of course, Vladimir Klitschko is going to have better techniques, but it's just totally different. It's right. the same sport, but it's totally different comparisons because it's like, you know, 50 years have gone by. 40, right. 40 years have gone by. It's like, whatever, man. Doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. Anyway, we've, uh, uh, okay, so we covered Hall versus Silva. Do you want to talk about Tiago Santos versus Glover Teixeira up and coming? Sure. Okay. What do you okay. Make so we have in Tiago Santos a guy a lot of people thought beat John Jones in his last fight. Um, he hasn't fought in a while though, and I believe he's coming off of um, some sort of surgeries or some form of injury. Um, and Glover Teixeira, he's been very interesting as of late because Glover Teixeira, I didn't think he was going to be a guy that would come around and still be like a current top contender, but like he's really been proving me wrong in the last few fights. I just, for some reason, I think of Glover Teixeira as just a bit too old and a bit too slow for modern light heavyweights, but he's able to keep up with these guys. Like, I rate, um, what's his name, who he just beat very highly. Who just beat who? Who Glover Teixeira just beat. Alex. Uh, Anthony Smith. Anthony Smith, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Um, I rate him very highly. And um, yeah, that was an impressive victory. To do what he did to him. him. Yeah. And there were a couple other really he's impressive. He's on a three or four fight winning streak. Yeah, yeah. I include the lava, which, you know, isn't really that impressive. But to have some sort of, you know, trajectory at this stage in his career where he's got like three or four wins in a row, pretty impressive. Yeah. He's definitely the dark horse in this division, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, you could say that for sure. Um, yeah, he's just one of those guys that, that, you know, he sticks around. He's going to get into that RDA realm pretty soon where, like, yeah. you beat Tashira and that means something, you know? Right. I feel like he's in that space right now because it's like, he may not be the champ, but, like, dude, getting a win over that guy has never been easy. Yes. You know, he's always game. And Tiago Santos, on the other side of the coin, is also very interesting because he holds a win over the current champion, also, Jack Blackovitz. So, but the awkward thing is Dana White just announced Israel Adesanya, the middleweight champion, is going up to light heavyweight to fight yeah. Jan Blackovitz. So, what does that mean? Is this, I would have thought of this as a top contender fight before that, but at this point, probably those guys are going to have to fight again before they get a shot. Yeah, they probably will. The timing isn't really that great for them, but I mean, and let's talk a bit about couldn't Israel Adesanya versus Jan Blakovitz? Couldn't that situation get kind of awkward? Yeah. What if it's an incredibly yeah. good fight and then they want to do a rematch or something like that? Yeah, it's true. I don't know what to make of that. It's, or what if Adesanya wins? Is he then tainted? It's, it's always the challenge you have when you have the guy go up or down. It's it creates weird dynamics. You know, it's like, you know, it's like the Henry Cejudo situation, right? Going up and taking the thirty-five pound title. It just makes things quite weird, right? Right. You know, it's like, it, yeah. it, would Adesanya make them bend the knee? Probably. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, it's an interesting fight. Um, definitely looking forward to that one. It is. Uh, so Dustin Poirier, Conor McGregor is still in discussion. Kind of an interesting um, fight to make. Looking forward to it if it happens. But you know, Dana is making claims that it's already kind of a done deal, and then Poirier is mentioning that like, look, there's some screwy stuff with the contract and it hasn't been signed. Uh, does Conor McGregor fight Dustin Poirier in 2021? No. Um, I just think McGregor is 
in the fight game for himself and it's some kind of negotiating tactic or something of that nature because I don't think Conor McGregor wants to beat guys he or try to beat guys he already beat and in fairness you know I'm positing something here but it makes you wonder how much of Conor McGregor's strategy changed with Habib's retirement because all of a sudden he was fighting Dustin Poirier for uh, ostensibly no title at all and just you know to become a number one contender potentially um, now he's in a position where if he just holds off the UFC is definitely going to give him that title shot right, right. to win the uh, vacant you know lightweight title provided he's actually vacating it who knows right but Connor's in a position where he can solidify some gold if he holds out for a bit and forces the UFC's hand right who yeah. else is going to fight for the title other than Con- it's going to be Connor McGregor and somebody Who's going to be fighting for a vacant title, provided the beef leaves? Okay. Outside theory here, um, would the UFC want to put Conor McGregor in a title fight? Just because historically he's been shown to not defend those titles. Yeah, I mean, because the UFC has always been about what's now. Hmm. It, you know, okay. Conor's lightning in a bottle, let's snatch it up and make right. some money off of it. He may only be here for one more fight. Right. We never know with him, right? Okay. But he's, you know, he could generate, Conor McGregor may generate as much. Um, yeah, I, I know they have a deal, obviously, for pay-per-view. But outside of that, merchandising and all the other things that they get out of, you know, Conor McGregor being a fighter and, like, star power publicity for them um, only building their sport further, right? You know, the reach that he has and, and what have you. It's like, they're definitely going to grab him. You know, he, he probably makes more... He probably generates more in one pay-per-view than pretty much all of the 11 other pay-per-views that would be in a year or more. Has Conor McGregor reached the status where um, he's never going to be not popular? Or are there things he can do and can time pass where it's just like, meh? Or will he always maintain that, like, that stardom factor. Oh, it'll go down. It'll go down over time. Okay. I think every single celebrity has their their peak and valley of their you know, of their popularity and things like that, but it's never gonna disappear, obviously. Okay. Right? So I mean he's at the point now where I think he's you know he's pretty much obviously he's transcended mixed martial arts and he's pretty much a household name to most people regardless of whether they even know much about the UFC or not. So I think that, you know, his peak and valley, even in his, even when he descends quite, you know, into, you know, old age and various other factors where he's not fighting anymore, he's still going to be that, he's still going to be that, like, you know, guy like Roy Jones who's walking down the street and they'll be like, Roy Jones, y'all must have forgot, or something like that, right? Wouldn't it be hilarious if Conor McGregor versus Anderson Silva was next? They were talking about it at, yeah. at, at a point. <laughs> I, bet, I honestly think it could happen. No, but, no, no, no. You know what I think is going to happen? He's going to fight Pacquiao. Conor McGregor versus Diego Sanchez. <laughs> <laughs> it's been in the works. Bro. <laughs> Did you see that DM? <laughs> Dan White? Yeah. Bro, I'd lose my promoter's okay, license Okay, well, let me ask you this then. Yeah. Say Ronda Rousey. She comes Fights back. Conor? No, <laughs> I don't want to see fight that. somebody or fights for the title. Does that mean anything still? In what capacity for fans or for for fans popularity? Yeah, yeah does it attract it? Dude, she's been in the WWE. She's you know she's still relatively well known. Okay. Definitely, I guarantee you, if she fights any woman for a UFC title, it's going to be more lucrative for the UFC than any other fighter they could put against mm. any champion. Okay. Yeah, it's just name recognition, for sure. But that popularity factor, like, it's, I understand it, but it's also bizarre to me. It's like, there was a point when I was like, oh, Conor McGregor's fighting, that's fucking awesome. There's going to be this awesome press conference. But now it's like, I've seen his shtick. I've seen how he, like, does his negotiating thing and... He's had a few losses. I don't know. The, the 
chips are showing on the paint. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm on to Kamzat, uh, Kamzat Chimaev, who, it, by the way, is scheduled to fight Leon Edwards. In fairness, it only takes one fight for Conor McGregor to remind us all who he is, and he's yeah. an anomaly. You know, in the Cowboy Cerrone fight, in the leading up to that, lead up to that fight, like we didn't really get to see what Conor usually is all about. You know, yeah. he was very stoic, which is odd right. for Conor McGregor. Didn't talk a lot of shit. Just wanted to get in there and prove himself and things like that. Right. I think he felt, um, you know, to, to to assume something here, he probably felt a little bit uncomfortable with everything that happened with the Habib thing and just reined everything in for this one. Okay. Um, but it only takes one more, you know, it only takes him coming back against a guy like an RDA style opponent for him to just, you know, your kids are named Bob and Donald. We got to book you a hotel in your own home country. <laughs> that was so classic. Yeah. yeah. I'm dressed like El Chapo in his prime. <laughs> I got pythons on my feet in a car that spits fire. I mean, you know, he's, it only takes one opponent, one situation of quotes unquote bad blood for us to be reminded that there's nobody else like Conor McGregor. Right. You know, just wait. I mean, the thing is, is he's kind of become nice Conor McGregor now. He's giving Dustin Poirier praise and Nate Diaz praise. I don't know if we're going to see the crazy antics as much anymore. And I wonder if, in part, those crazy antics were a function of, you know, financial uh, prosperity, right? Where he doesn't really need to do that anymore. Like, why does he need to do that anymore? To make more money? To make, you know, he's got, like, what, $80 million in the bank, whatever he has. How much more money does he need to make? I, I think it's I changed. I also him. felt like he kind of enjoyed it, to a degree. I think he did, but I think, you know... It seems as though the tide's kind of shifted. Maybe he's getting more mature. Maybe he's just not worried about his paycheck anymore. Okay. You know, things things seem different, right? Yeah. Um, we'll see. I mean, I would love to see a, a Connor RDA style press conference again because I mean that that shit is cool. But right. Anyway. Speaking and, of RDA, <laughs> we have a, a rebooked uh, fight coming up: Islam Makachev versus Rafael Dos Anjos going to be the main event. Um, Islam Makachev, notable training partner of Habib and a guy that Habib has talked about being the next lightweight champion after he retires. Can he break through the gate that is RDA and get into the top <laughs> lightweight division? Right. Is RDA a gatekeeper or is he a late elite gatekeeper? I think he's like, it's like a rusty gate, you know, with like, <laughs> he could easily knock the pins out and open it up. Like, okay. it's, you know, it's still a battle, don't get me wrong. It's not easy to get into, but, you know, it's not the gate that it was, you know what I mean? It's, it's had some age, some time, it's a little rusted, it's a little worn down, you know. It's not the gate that closed around Anthony Pettis in his pride. <laughs> <laughs> Enough with the gate analogy. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, anything else we wanted to discuss? We have uh, Davison Figueroa returning versus Alex Perez for the flyweight title. What was Figueredo? Say it? Figueredo? Okay, I'll trust your pronunciation. Figueroa? I don't know, maybe. You're probably correct. <laughs> Davy Figueroa. Davy F. Davy F. Junior Jose Junior. What are the odds that um, this gentleman misses weight, especially during COVID weight cutting? Okay, ready. Fuck, there's an ad. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait. Continue. Fucking ads. <laughs> you gotta get an ad blocker, dude. Hold on, hold on. Okay. Pronouncenames.com. Figueredo. Figueredo. Davis. Davison Figueredo. I've never heard the commentators pronounce it that way. <laughs> Anyways. Um. 
Figueroa. He's defending the flyweight title <laughs> versus Alex Perez. Yeah. Um, are you surprised that flyweight is still sticking around? Uh, not surprised anymore. You know, I think they have a really exciting guy in Figueiredo. Figueiredo. Uh-huh. Uh, David Boy. And I think that, you know, he is a little bit like the new, you know, the new age Jose Aldo. He's very exciting. He's flashy. He's dangerous. He looks menacing. Um, you know, he's got the right look. He's got the right, you know, style and, and you know, implementation of techniques to be exciting to watch, you know. Um, I think they needed a guy who was, you know, the problem is, is Demetrius Johnson is just like really, really nice. He's a super nice guy. And then, you know, obviously Henry Cejudo kind of had that cringe thing going for him, but I think they needed a guy who seems menacing, who seems dangerous to kind of buy into, you know, because I didn't feel like Henry Cejudo was dangerous, you know? Yeah. It's not something I thought about. And then same thing, you know, Demetrius Johnson, it wasn't like I thought he was like, I know he's dangerous, but I didn't feel that he was a menacing fighter. Speaking Figueredo, of, there's a ferocity, there's right. a ferocity to yeah. him. There's a viciousness to him. You know? Yeah. Speaking of Demetrius Johnson, he's a guy that now that he's no longer in the UFC, like I'm totally forgetting about him when it comes to like the pound for pound and goat lists. But dude, I haven't like what's his last fight? Who did he fight last? Ah, uh, I want to say Edward something. Well, while I look that up, continue. <clears throat> okay. Um, speaking of fights coming up, we have Kamzat Chimaev, the new hotness, the new hype, versus Leon Edwards in a five-round main event. It's a crazy jump up in competition, especially considered Leon Edwards is on a nine fight winning streak at welterweight. And he's fighting this guy in his fourth fight in the UFC, who's not even ranked yet, but is supposedly like highly, highly skilled. And I'm on the hype train too. It's just, um, Usually the guys rank that highly don't want to do that because there's so much they can lose fighting a guy who's so well skilled, but not ranked. I mean, what's really in it for them? There is some exposure in it being a main event, but why not just hold out for another ranked guy, especially when you're trying to climb the ladder and get that title shot. Um, so it might be a matter of Leon Edwards has just not fought in a while and he wants to get back to it also. He was holding out for certain fights, but then there's issues with travel and COVID. I mean, Leon Edwards is from England, which, um, has a lot of cases of COVID. So he had trouble, um, coming to different places and different opponents also turning him down. Yeah. Um, and speaking of that, I believe England is likely to be going into another lockdown and preventing travel out of the country. So I'm not sure what is going to happen with this fight. Yeah, it's, you know, everything's up in the air right now. Obviously we're kind of in a second wave and, and hmm. pretty much everywhere in the world at this point. Right. Uh, you know, there's a lot of issues going on, uh, with COVID and, and, um, international travel and things like that. So who knows what's going to happen? And I think, you know, we're in a worse position than we were in, in March in many ways, uh, in many parts of the and world. And certainly, um, as we move into the winter, people are going to be spending a lot more time indoors. Yeah. And the theory is, um, outdoor spaces, more room, less likely to contract things. So it's a so danger. Danny King Dad was the last guy to fight Demetrius Johnson. Johnson okay. winning by unanimous decision. Okay. But he fought him October 12th of last year. So he hasn't actually fought in over a year. So okay. kind of interesting. Who knows what's going to happen there, you know? 
Um, I don't keep tabs on DJ, but I kind of feel like I should. You know, yeah. I feel like in part because I feel like he's not fighting top tier guys. But I never heard of the guys he was fighting it before, even in the UFC. You know, before they fought him, I didn't know who they were. Right. So, okay. So are these guys so much worse than the guys that were fighting in the UFC? Maybe not. Right. Like is Devison Figueredo that Figu Figueredo that much better than Danny King Dad? Probably, but who knows? I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I see. I see what you're getting at, but I think this comparison would be more relevant at a deeper division, like lightweight or something like that. But arguably, I think all the good flyweights are in the UFC. Arguably, though, one FC has a larger talent pool of smaller guys. Mm. So maybe they have a Yeah, that's an interesting you know, point. Who knows, right? Obviously he's out, you know, out of Asia and they have tendency to have more, you know, smaller fighters there, right? That's so an interesting Popularize smaller fighters. So there's more potential to be lucrative at the lower weight classes in, in, in that company, right? Because it's, they, they actually care about the flyweights over in 1FC, you know, as an audience as well as the company sure. in, a lot of, in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, there's an argument to be made that some of these guys might be better or as good, but I just don't know who they are. That's an interesting point, the whole care about the flyweights thing. Yeah. Do you think there's something to be said if a population is physically smaller that makes them get into, like, physically smaller fighters? You know what I mean? It's more relatable? Yeah, we talked about this before. Yeah, I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think in some ways, you know, it's, it is a relatability issue. Right, it's just like a dude that's five three, five two, mm. is less relatable as a dangerous person, potentially dangerous person, and an exciting, you know, uh, fight to watch than like, you know, than like a really buff child. Yeah, yeah, or like somebody who's closer to your size is more exciting because you you can relate to that, like you said, right. or bigger so you can be impressed by. Right, right. Um, it's just. Um, I think there's an issue there, there's a bit of a gap there. And, and uh, yeah, I think probably that's why flyweight and some of the other smaller weight classes are more popular in, in some of the Asian countries. Right. So, yeah. Anything else? Not particularly. Right. Thanks a lot for listening, folks. Take it easy.